0: So if this is your first time here, or you just haven't paid a lot of attention over the last few months, we as a church have been reading through the Bible together. And so in January we started in Genesis Genesis, and started reading through Scripture. And so uh, if you're behind, it's okay, just pick up with where we're at. Uh, You can get the reading outline on the app or on the website, and just read along with us. One of the things that we've done is our preaching series has... Corresponded with that reading and so each week we are preaching through the Bible and we'll do this all the way through 2015 And recently we've been reading in what's really just kind of a depressing part of scripture We've seen Israel's unfaithfulness and we've seen their king's Uh, turn from the Lord we've seen them fall we've seen the Assyrians coming in and taking them captive it's just been it's kind of been a depressing time it's not a woohoo we're being successful it is much more a man we are a rotten people and so with that I want to take your attention to 2nd Kings chapter 18 we're going to look at chapters 18 19 and uh, a little bit in Isaiah this morning 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 5, we're going to be introduced to the king Hezekiah. It says of him in verse 5, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So we're introduced to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the good kings. He's one of the few kings that begins good and ends good. He's not perfect, and we're going to see some of his kind of challenges and his weaknesses today. He was a really good king. He is the king of Judah. Now, if you remember through our preaching series or through our reading, there has been a divide in Israel. Israel is split basically into two nations, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. Judah is the smaller of the two, but more significant. Where Judah is, that's Jerusalem. That's the temple. It's kind of the center of where God's people are at. All the nation that kind of surrounds them, they go as Israel. They have two kings, two groups, two nations. At some point, we even see them fighting with one another. As we've been reading, we realize that the Assyrians have come up against Israel. And it's a really difficult time to be king. To to make matters a little worse for Hezekiah, he is 25 years old when he becomes king. 25 years old. So I want you to think about 25 years old, you are the overseer of a nation that is being attacked. And it's only four years into his kingship that Israel is besieged by Syria. So right next door, your people, your brothers, that that group, they are besieged. It'll take just a little under three years for Israel to be no more. The Assyrians will completely destroy them. They will take them captive. They will spread them out. They will send other people into the land. Three years in... Israel no more. Then just begin to think if that's Israel, we're certainly next. And so eight years goes by between Israel falling and eight years of tension. Is Assyria coming after us? What are they going to do next? How is it going to impact these people that I care about and I lead? Eight years of just tension. And then, Assyria begins to attack the cities of Judah. One by one, they attack the fortified cities of Judah, and they are just beginning to crash in and come closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer to overthrowing Judah, to overthrowing Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah is deeply troubled by this. He's concerned. He realizes this is happening. This is where we pick up here in chapter 18. And so Hezekiah writes a letter. They didn't I, I know he couldn't like, you know, tweet at him or send him some kind of email. There's none of that. So he had to actually write a letter. You couldn't even stick it in the mail. I'm sure somebody had to run it to the king of Assyria, but he writes a letter to the king of Assyria and he apologizes. He says, "Look, man, I, I've messed up." Now what he's apologizing, it's a bad start to, by the way, a good story for Hezekiah. He apologizes because Hezekiah had rebelled against the king of Assyria and he had been part of rebellions. In other words, he is fighting against them. He's not just accepting that the king of Assyria is the man and that Assyria is a superpower. Hezekiah said you don't really have a place here. He's pushed back on them but now with seemingly everything crashing in he apologizes. He says in verse 14, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. This is his request to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria responds back and says, give us 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, a talent's roughly 75 pounds. It's somewhere in that range. But to put that in context, understand that's about 11 to 12 tons of of gold and somewhere between or of silver and somewhere between one and two tons of gold a ton is a lot right now I, I want you to think about something just for a moment let's say I you know I, I'm like Mel can I borrow some money Mel's like sure can I have a ton of silver a ton now, she's like how much is that no a real literal ton I don't care when you live it's hard to come up with like 12 tons of silver, or a ton and a half of gold. That's just really difficult. And so Hezekiah gives them everything. He gives them everything. He goes through the whole city, even into the temple, even into the places of worship, and he begins to take the silver and take the gold to give it to the king of Assyria. He says in verse 15, and Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. Verse 16, at that time Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and he gave it to the king of Assyria. But like any true gangster, right, You think that's going to, like, you know, make the king of Assyria say, okay, we're good? No. So the king of Assyria gets the silver, gets the gold, and some time goes by and there's some stuff that you can kind of continue to read. But eventually we'll send a small army and some delegates back to Judah in front of the people to call for surrender, a complete surrender. And so he sends his delegation in. And they begin to, in their mind, negotiate. Their negotiations will be very um, forward in their mind. They will make sure that Judah understands that there is no chance, no chance they have to withstand the might of Assyria. They will surely fall. And so if they'll just surrender, things will go much easier. Chapters 18 and 19 document Hezekiah and this this, uh, confrontation. Uh, Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 does the same. Now Isaiah is the prophet who is speaking, thus says the Lord, and interacting with Hezekiah during this time. So I want you to see this is a significant part of Israel's history. Think about it. Israel has fallen. Assyria, a superpower like the world had never seen, sits on their doorstep. This is a big deal. The way the next year, two years play out, will decide whether Israel remains a nation or is not. For the king who loves and oversees his people, understand how significant these decisions would be. It's heavy. But this morning, I just kind of want to remind us, there's more here for us than just history. Yes, everything that we are reading is descriptive, meaning it tells us about how God dealt in this moment with Judah, with Hezekiah. It's descriptive. You're not going to find a prescriptive description command in here so in other words you're not going to find thou shalt do this that clearly prescribes to us some truth that we are to follow nor will we find some doctrine that's laid out that is specific and found here instead we will see a description of those things and for us as believers when we read the bible and we find ourselves in those descriptive texts it's very important for us to not press our culture our preferences, our interpretation into discerning that description. Instead, we must use the rest of Scripture, the doctrines, the prescriptions that come from the Bible itself to look back and interpret how God was working with His people. And so this is what we're doing, and what I think we get to see this morning is a beautiful picture of trusting in God. It says in verse 5 that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. Now, trust is foundational for any basic relationship. If you're going to have a good relationship, you're going to have to trust them. But for us who live in a broken, fallen world, trust is hard sometimes. Because many times our trust is broken. I am so aware of this because I have a four-year-old who remembers everything. And I do not remember everything. And if she was smart, she would have understood it any time she could come up and just lie and say, Dad, you said. And I would be like, okay. I, it, it, I, just, I can't remember, but she remembers. So uh, it was last week, and, man, I am tired. My head hurts. And Lena comes in and says, Dad, you promised today we'd play Hi-Ho Cheerio. It's just, cheesy game that somehow there's absolutely no skill you just flip this thing it lands on cherries you pull cherries off put them in the basket whoever gets rid of all their cherries first they win so it's great for like a four-year-old because there's no strategy right what's really incredibly frustrating and for a game of complete luck she wins like eight times out of ten and it drives me crazy but anyway whatever so we're going to play hi-ho cheerio she remembers this i didn't remember We are always measuring, can I trust what is in front of me? Can I trust what this person says? Can I trust in this object? Can I trust in this person? We're always measuring trust. And depending on your past experience, it may be easy or hard to put trust in something. Trust, as a result, is based in truth. It's how we we measure trust. It is either something in something that is true and therefore good, or a lie and therefore not. Trust comes down to truth. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord. And his trust in the Lord leads him into a certain series of events. Although they are descriptive and they are hit for him and for Israel here and we're reading about them. There are truths that are supported throughout scripture that show us as Jesus followers what it looks like to trust in the Lord. Watch. And how it impacts our lives and the lives of others around us. And so I want you to understand, this is more than just a historical account. This is more than something that, man, that's just in the Old Testament. That's about Israel. That's way back there. And we just kind of skim over it and move on to the next thing. No, it is reinforcement from God to build up our trust and faith in Him that gives us an example of those doctrines and those truths that are preached to us throughout God's Word. And so... I told you about the delegation. The delegation comes into Judah. And they begin to explain that Judah is doomed. And that any trust in their God is not going to end well. They mean it. They believe it. They don't fear Yahweh. And they haven't feared any other gods they've ran into thus far. Why would they start now? And so they begin to ridicule Hezekiah. And Judah for trusting in the Lord. One observation I want to make. When we trust in the Lord, when we trust in His truths, that will be countercultural. Always will be. Always will be. And it will lead to us being ridiculed. Trusting in the Lord doesn't always take us to a place where everything is peachy in our life. Sometimes it takes us to a place where it leaves us as the outcast. As the one who's different. As the one who's persecuted. And so here, in 2 Kings chapter 19, we'll pick up in verse 10. This has been going on for a while. The king of Assyria writes back and says, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Everyone else has. Listen, this isn't just some kind of threat that's completely off base. There's a track record here. Assyria is conquering the world. No one else has pushed them away. Everyone else has fallen. And everyone else who put their faith in something they called God didn't stand up to them either. And so in verse 11, he says, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and you shall be delivered? What makes you so different? And he goes on in verse 12, and he says, Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed? And he goes on and he lists nation after nation after nation whose leadership or whose king stood before Assyria and said, no, our God will deliver us. And so he's ridiculing them. He's saying, listen, let's assume for just a moment there is just one God. And let's just assume for the moment that that one God has chose to reveal himself. What makes you think here in Little Judah you've got that figured out? The Assyrians have have destroyed everything. To give you an example, I want to show you uh, some maps. All right, And as you see these maps, think of it this way. Think if the U.S. decided we were going to wage war, I don't know, pick someone fun like Cuba or the Bahamas, right? Let's pick Cuba. That's one little island. We'll take Cuba. Okay, we have way more resources. We have a lot more people. If we said we're going to wage war on Cuba, really, just, just think about it. Do you think Cuba has a chance? I mean, this is what's happening. I want you to see first, I want you to see Judah, okay? Judah in the time of Hezekiah. Can we put that up? Okay, see the circle here? This is basically everything that is Judah, right? And even as we get down here, this itself is becoming less and less on the fringes. Remember, I told you the Assyrians are attacking the cities of Judah one by one. Hezekiah and the king are up here at the north in Jerusalem. All right, now we're going to zoom out, and I want you to see Assyria. All of this is the Assyrian Empire. All right. Right down here, this little spot about my finger, right right in here. This is all that Judah stuff you just saw a minute ago. This is Assyria. They are little Judah. I want you to understand that nothing about defying the king of Assyria makes sense when viewed just out of reason and logic. And so it leaves them to ridicule. So what on earth will Hezekiah do? He can't just mount up an army and go fight them. Well, I mean, what will he do? And how will he respond to the Assyrians? goes on in verse nineteen, or ch- uh, chapter 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. And he spread it before the Lord. He goes in to the temple. He takes the letter from the king of Assyria. He opens it up and he sets it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God you alone of all the kingdoms of earth you have made heaven and earth so here's what happens hezekiah trusts in the lord he takes his need that is overwhelming that is so far past him and so far past what even reason he has to think they can survive and he takes this huge thing and he sets it before the lord and he does the only thing he knows to do pray And in his prayer, he doesn't begin, woe is me. He begins his prayer by acknowledging who God is. Reinforcing the source of his trust. Remember that. He's reinforcing the source of his trust because trust is about truth. God is truth. He's reinforcing the idea. He's looking and he's saying, listen, you and you alone are God. There's just one And if you are alone, the creator and sustainer of all life, then listen, every nation is under your authority. Every one of them. You oversee everything. Nothing is beyond you. So Hezekiah isn't going to Shake. He's not going to bake or back down from his view of who God is. He acknowledges it. It's the beginning of his prayer. And so verse 16, he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib. That's the king of Assyria. Which he has sent to mock the living God. Next he says, Lord, give attention to what is going on here. Now, Hezekiah knows, the Lord knows. Hezekiah is saying, Lord, give your focus, your attention here. He's presenting the need. And so he goes on and he says, Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and cast their gods into the fire. Hezekiah acknowledges the truth of the criticism that is put against them. They have destroyed everybody. They are mighty. And none of their gods were able to help them. But he continues, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, the one true God, save us, please, from this hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. This is his prayer. I can imagine with a lot of emotion. a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety. Hezekiah says, please. The point is, Hezekiah knows God doesn't have to save them. I'm reminded in Hebrews, even for those of us who place our faith and trust in the Lord, yes, there are some who do great and mighty things and some who do things that are just miraculous and there were others who were just sawn in half and persecuted and died. And God is the same God of both and their faithfulness is the same and for one god found fit to kill and the other to save for one to let die and for the other one to multiply it god not, it, I, it, hezekiah recognizes it says please please Hezekiah's trust in the Lord led him to pray. Here's a few things really quick. He trusted that there is only one God. There's just one. His God was different than all the other gods. They were false. His was true. He trusted that God cared about him and his people. He trusted that that God, the one creator and sustainer, who has revealed himself to the people of Judah, that he cared about them. And last, he trusted that God cared about his revelation, about his name, and how people saw and understood him. He recognized this was a priority of the mission that had been going on since the garden. And so, He prays in verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. 185,000 people. Okay, that's like uh, more than Knoxville. That's like three Johnson cities okay just so you understand how many people that is three Johnson cities wiped out overnight they wake up and find their bodies that is so far beyond anything Hezekiah or Israel can do this is a supernatural thing you say how did that happen I mean, making light of it, but I want you to see the point. You know, God sent a text to an angel. The angel goes down, right? And the angel goes all call of duty on 185,000 people. Say, why? Because to God, it is that simple. To us, it's 185,000 people that far outnumber us, that represent a superpower. To God, it's just something I have to say. Understand the, the great supernatural power that came through Hezekiah's prayer. So, I want you to see Hezekiah trusting the Lord, and his prayer led him to salvation. He said, how do you know that had to do with his prayer? Isaiah, who is, again, the prophet during this time, says in verse 21 of chapter 37, says, Isaiah sent to Hezekiah, and he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Here it is. Because you have prayed to me. Why did this happen? Because Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and prayed. Later in Hezekiah's life, he's going to get sick, really sick, sick to the point of death. And God's going to come to Hezekiah through Isaiah and he says, listen, prepare your house, you're going to die. It's made up. This is what's going to happen. It's reality. It's going to come true. Hezekiah, however, didn't want to die. And it says he wept and he prayed before the Lord. And he prayed. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 5, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yeah, 20, verse 5, turn back, this is God speaking to Isaiah, And say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Listen, abide is not just a slogan we use at Tri Cities Baptist Church, it is anchored in scripture. It means simply this, that everything that is good in our life, everything that has power, everything that has authority, everything that we can do comes from him. It comes from our relationship with Jesus. Everything. Every bit of good, every bit of power, every bit of authority that we have comes from him. And so if we want to live in those things, we live abiding in Him. He becomes our pursuit. God doesn't need our efficiency. God doesn't need Hezekiah to go make a great army. God doesn't need him to do some gr- crazy kingdom leadership thing to just change. You know what, God, re- God just wants him to pray. Hezekiah's responsibility is to trust in the Lord, to rest in Him. And when we see this happen, we see a powerful, miraculous result in the life of Israel, the life of Judah. And so, a few things really quick, and then what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to pray. We're just going to pray. Seems like an odd thing to talk so much about trusting in the Lord and uh, prayer and not pray. But I want to remind us a few larger things before we get there. Number one, our trust is only as strong as its truth. Our trust is only as strong as its truth that it's anchored in. Sometimes we place our trust in so many things. And we're deceived. I love my wife. Can I tell you something? And in a very real way, I trust her. I can't trust her like I trust the Lord. Even good things. The value of our trust is anchored into its source and truth. The other nations, they trusted their gods. They were false gods. There's only one God. So what does that mean? It means it, your trust may be very childlike even, but it has to be in the one God. Those other nations weren't able to just say, listen, well, you know, we trusted in a God, and, you know, it's like God I'm sure has a bunch of names. I mean, but we trusted in a God. And that, that didn't work for them, and it will not work for us. God has given us one name unto salvation, and that is the name of Jesus, his son. Second thing I want us to see, trusting in the Lord makes you an enemy of the world. Trusting in the Lord makes you an enemy of the world. Jesus' followers do not conform. For those of us that kind of just want to be rebels, you know, I, I, I'm looking at your faces. I know some of you like being the rebel. And Jesus, listen, we're a little bit of the rebel. We've been transformed by the renewing of our mind. Paul writes in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. say, why? How does that make sense? Because the Jesus followers are not of this world, Jesus says in John 17. They're not of this world. And it's for that very reason that the world hates you. You will be ridiculed. The more you trust in the Lord, the more opposition you will find. Number three, trusting in the Lord will lead us to abide in Jesus. Trusting in the Lord will lead us to abide in Jesus. There will be disciplines and pursuits in our life, not because they are some legalistic standard or some yoke of heaviness, but because we understand that He, and He alone is God, that He is the source of every good thing, that He is the authority. And so we will pray, we will study, we will think, meditate, we will talk, we will talk about the things of God, we will give our money and our resources and our time, we will worship, we will worship. Lastly, trusting in the Lord is part of our sanctification. Meaning it's part of the process of growing to be more like Christ. Point is, you won't arrive in this life. It's not going to happen. It will be something you are ever pursuing. So if you're sitting here and you're going, man, you know, I just, I'm just not, not where I should be. That's right. You and everyone else in this room. It is the pursuit, the pursuit that we will always chase. Here's the example. If you remember in Mark, I think it's Mark chapter 9, um, there is the father desperate for his child to be healed. And in his conversation with Jesus, Jesus says, listen, if you have faith, all things are possible. And in a very honest and transparent statement, he says, I believe, help my unbelief this is this is the pursuit of trust you may have trust and it may be very childlike and it may be a saving trust but that's not it that's not the end we are still pursuing this morning i would call you if you've never placed your faith in jesus christ to do so god loved you so much he sent him to pay the penalty for your sin because it was something that you could not do It was greater than the Assyrian army. It's impossible. You were not going to overcome your separation from God. And he loved you enough that he gave his son who paid the price for your sin, your penalty, so that you might be reconciled back into a relationship with God and in good standing. If you're here and you've never done that, I pray you would trust in Jesus. And if you're here... And you have trust, I pray the desperate, honest proclamation of that Father would be yours. Lord, I trust. Help my distrust. I trust. Help my distrust. And so this morning we're going to close in just an extended time of prayer. I'm going to ask the band, they're going to come on up and they're just going to play. And you can come forward, you can stay right there in your chair, whatever you want to do but i'm going to ask that for the next two or three minutes you would just give your attention to the lord now listen some of you come in with great needs you are hezekiah and assyria is at your doorstep and you don't have a clue what to do it may be in your marriage it may be in something in your health It may not even be necessarily a sin issue. It just may be as simple as, Lord, I have no clue where my life is going. What's next? But the reality is, is you recognize there is a great need. Who do you trust with your need? And so this morning, the challenge is a simple one. Trust in the Lord. Take your need to Him. And in a very real way, in a very way that is private but real, lay your need. Lay it out before the Lord. Acknowledge who He is. Remember Hezekiah's prayer. Acknowledge who He is. Acknowledge the reality of the overwhelming need in front of you. Pray to the Lord. Please. Please. Lord, I trust. Help my distrust. Would you bow your head? Would you make this a time of prayer?